This is a Broad Pods production. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Broad Radio. For you, by you. Broad Radio. Here for more. Hello and welcome to Broad Radio. I'm Jo Stanley and today my co-host is Zoe Daniel. It's so lovely to see you, Zoe. Good morning, Jo. It's really fabulous for me to be sharing the show with you today, Zoe, because your insights and your expertise I think is really important to us today. We've got a show in which we hope to have some really useful conversations. We're going to be joined by Liberty Sanger, who is the Head of Injuries at Morris Blackburn Lawyers. She's going to be taking us through sexual harassment law and what we can do if we find ourselves experiencing sexual harassment in the workplace. Also today, and I don't know Zoe if you have found this, I think a lot of parents are asking the question, how can we have conversations? with our kids particularly teenagers about consent are you finding this yeah absolutely as the mum of a 14 year old son I've thought about this quite a bit over the last couple of weeks and I have actually had conversations with him so yeah I'm really interested to sort of delve into just how to handle that how to approach it what sort of messages to send and also kind of where's enough you know where's the line When, when have you done your job there Mm. as a parent. Yes, we're going to be joined by Catherine Manning, who is the founder and CEO of Seed Workshops, which is a team of fantastic educators that go into schools, particularly secondary schools, and teach healthy relationships and consent. And for laughs, because we need it, uh, comedian Kirsty Wiebeck is going to be joining us and sharing with us the long list of annoying things that she does, which makes it a miracle that she and her partner have just celebrated their three-year anniversary. <laughs> Don't ask your own partner what is annoying about you, because I did that yesterday and it was quite alarming how long the list was and we introduce you to a fantastic network for women entrepreneurs when founder Cherie Rubenstein joins us to tell us about her amazing network called One Roof. She joins us a little later on. So Zoe, um, I have to acknowledge that uh, going into planning this show, I felt like I really was very heavy-hearted that we're finding ourselves Now, I think over two weeks since Brittany Higgins uh, very courageously came forward and shared her um, story. Uh, And I guess the heavy heart was that I really 
the, the, this whole thing is unfolding further and further in, in Parliament. There, there have been more um, allegations, more stories that we're hearing. And it, it, it really upsets me. Firstly, I want to acknowledge that it's upsetting for so many people who are victim survivors themselves, that this conversation and this rolling headlines that we're being confronted with is really hard. And um, so we have got that 1-800-RESPECT number on the screen there. Um, but it's difficult for all of us, I think, who have had people in our own circles who we may have been supporters of victim, victim survivors. And really the whole conversation is very, very devastating, isn't it? I think it's really draining. Um, I think, you know, as you say, all women have either experienced a, a form of harassment or know someone who has at, at various levels, some uh, more minor, some some quite extreme. And it really does send you into sort of a, a you know, lifelong reanalysis of things that have happened in your past that perhaps you didn't call out, things that, that have happened to friends, you know, whether you were there for people enough, whether you should mm. have said something, what your responsibilities were. You know, maybe it's a, a kind of female thing as well to analyse your own behaviour within that. But I also think that, you know, and you mentioned rightly people who have been survivors of, of sexual violence and how this impacts on them. And I think, you know, we're sort of in this um, situation where we're working through something where people are hoping that we will actually move forward as a result of this, but we haven't necessarily seen any forward movement um, because we're still kind of in a phase of of obfuscation uh, in some ways by the people who have been elected to lead us. And as you said, you know, with allegations now on both sides of politics about senior as yet unnamed members of parliament, historical behaviour, uh, allegations that have been made, uh, one particular woman who uh, has since taken her own life uh, as a result, it would seem of what she says happened to her when she was only 16. And yet we are still in a situation where um, the powerful men who are accused are still in their positions. Uh, they haven't been named. Um, there, there are questions around reporting, um, around who knew what when again, um, and suddenly people bringing forward allegations from both sides of politics and submitting those allegations to the Australian Federal Police kind of as a result of what's happened over the last couple of weeks, even though they knew about these things before. Uh, so from all of those perspectives, it's, it's quite confusing. It's really confronting. And for me, at least, it, it's still kind of a watching brief around, well, what, what happens now? Does this mm. actually move the needle or not? Yeah, and I feel like it's gaining some momentum. I'm wondering, is this our Me Too moment? Yeah, so it's really interesting. I've been reflecting on this quite a bit, you know, having covered the election of Donald Trump in the US, who, as you would know, there was sort of a, a huge scandal where some uh, Access Hollywood tapes came out during the 26th campaign where he was caught on a hot mic talking about grabbing women by the pussy. Uh, this followed a, a very sort of combative campaign with Hillary Clinton, female candidate, and you know, which gave rise to a lot of sexism. Donald Trump was then uh, elected 
the Women's March happened the day after his inauguration where millions of people marched across the US and the world. At that time, it was the biggest public protest that, that ever happened. And then after that, the Me Too movement, which had, had kind of been in its infancy since 2006, really reignited and you saw all of these powerful men uh, called out and many of them ended up losing their jobs uh, either resigning or being sacked or exiting politics or business or media or whatever it was um, as a result of that. And then you, you sort of wonder, well, is that why the media in Australia started to focus on what was happening in high uh, echelons of business and politics here? And is that then why Brittany Higgins felt comfortable or more comfortable coming out with the allegations that she's made? And is that then why we are at the place that we're at now. Um, but I think, as I said last week, Joe, uh, the question is, you know, has it changed anything? Will it change anything? Will it just blow over and, and kind of go back into the background again? Or do we actually force it to move that needle? Well, I have to say I, I was enraged over the weekend when I saw this particular tweet, which um, just reminded me of that moment when Julia Banks stood in Parliament and spoke about the sexist and dangerous environment that women are in. And look at the men. They just turned their backs and walked out. So it's not like they haven't been told. It's not like people haven't tried to have this conversation in the past and they haven't listened. And now look at this. That, that image of Julia is so isolated. She's so alone. And it really reflects mm -hmm. how incredibly courageous women are when they speak up. But it also shows that, well, who, are we talking to people's backs? Are we talking to the walls? Yeah, I mean, the photo is just a metaphor for mm. everything, isn't it? And she just looks exhausted, yes. as you say, and just completely isolated with all of those suits with their backs to her. And, you know, this is kind of my fundamental question around where we are now. What's changed? Yeah. You know, are, are we still kind of in a position of making excuses where you've seen... Uh, Peter Dutton, for example, come out and talk about she said, he said in the context of Brittany Higgins' allegations, um, you know, some suggesting that's just cop speak from a former police officer, others saying that, you know, that's deliberately placed language to undermine, to insert doubt around the truth of her allegations, which is fundamental to all of the issues around reporting of sexual assault of course, the, the fact that it's so hard to firstly come forward mm. and then be believed and then get any actual action on what has happened or is alleged to have happened to you and, and an independent eye over uh, the allegations that you've made. So I, I really still see this very much as a work in, in progress. Um, and I think, you know, without going on too much, there's a couple of things um, that need to happen. And, and one is that the federal government, and I, by that I don't mean party political, all, all sorts of politics, need to read the room. Mm. If they are representative of our population, if they are to set an example for us, if they are setting a, a cultural example for the way that other people should behave, then that's the starting point for the way that they should manage this going forward. Yes, well, the good thing is there is actually, for all of us, 
uh, laws in place to protect us and, uh, you know, very clear guidelines as to what our employers should do if any kind of harassment takes place in the workplace. So in a moment, we are going to be joined by Liberty Sanger, who's the head of injuries at Morris Blackburn Lawyers. She's going to be educating us, I suppose, on what we can do should we find ourselves in a position where we are feeling threatened or there's any kind of harassment taking place for us in the workplace. So that's going to be next on Broad Radio. Well, Broad Radio is thrilled to be working with Morris Blackburn Lawyers in the next few months to bring some really useful conversations and, we hope, useful information to you should you have experienced some kind of personal injury or if you have questions with regards to your rights. And we felt that it was pertinent today to learn about sexual harassment in the workplace and what laws protect us. So we're really pleased to welcome Head of Injuries from Morris Blackburn Lawyers, Liberty Sanger. Hi there, Liberty. Hi, Joe. Now, I feel like I should know this, but what actually constitutes sexual harassment in the workplace? Because it's a very varied uh, set of circumstances, isn't it? Yeah, and great question, because a lot of uh, women in particular think that uh, comments that they put up within the workplace are just part of what they have to endure rather than it being sexual harassment. So it's unwanted or unwelcome behaviour of a sexual nature which a reasonable person would anticipate that uh, would make another person feel intimidated, offended or humiliated. Um, So we've often heard about casual sexism, uh, and I think people know what that is. Comments, um, uh, brushing up against another person, um, sharing uh, explicit uh, information via email or text, pornographic material in the workplace, Um, You know, and in its most um, uh, grotesque form, uh, we hear about uh, physical assaults in the workplace. All of these things, anything that makes you feel unwanted or unwelcome and is of a sexual nature, uh, that is sexual harassment. And that's something that you should be seeking information about what you can do to stop it. Liberty, where's the duty of care for employers in this? And at what point do they need to step in? I mean, surely every woman could relate examples of what we might describe as low-level harassment in the workplace. As an employer, do you have a duty of care legally to act on that sort of behaviour? Yes, you do. Uh, Every employer has a duty to provide a safe place of work uh, to all their employees. And there's a lot of information out there to help employers figure out what steps they should proactively take. They should be engaging with their uh, workforce about the risks in the workplace and making sure they've got steps in place to uh, eliminate those. Um, When it comes to uh, sexual harassment, what that really means is that you've got to be committed to having a safe and inclusive workplace. Uh, And the employers that get this right lead from the top. They have a transparent and openly communicated a strategy commitment to a, a diverse and inclusive workplace. What does that mean? They make sure they've got uh, women and men, uh, people from all backgrounds at every layer of their organisation. They have uh, policies, um, uh, training. Uh, they exhibit the behaviours themselves that they expect to be exhibited in the workplace. And if someone, uh, or, and it's well known, I should say, what uh, to do if there is 
and a situation where someone feels as though there is sexual harassment in the workplace. Um, so people know what to do uh, and they know that they'll be safe and supported if they come forward with a complaint. Um, where employers get this wrong is if they turn a blind eye, they, they, they don't have regular training, they don't um, themselves take steps to um, uh, make sure that their staff know about the policies. Um, we've got to see this step change. We've got to see employers really taking this issue very, very seriously and making sure that they are proactively uh, creating the right culture at work so that everyone feels safe and included. I would like to see too uh, an, a sense of empowerment for all people, specifically women in this conversation, um, to know that they can actually put their hand up and say, I, I feel uncomfortable because often with that low what would you call it low grade low level kinds of harassment you feel like oh maybe I've invited this by having a bit of a laugh with someone or maybe I've misread the situation or you know I don't feel like it's extreme enough to say anything but it can actually really affect you so how do we empower women to actually know that they can say something and act that's another great question um I'd encourage everyone to have a look at some uh, guidance material put out by the Victorian regulator, WorkSafe, which makes it really clear that every person, every woman should be able to raise such concerns in a safe way, knowing that they won't be uh, victimised or, um, or cast aside or um, labelled a troublemaker. Uh, quite the opposite, that it will be encouraged and the complaint will be dealt with seriously and that action will be taken. So how do we uh, make sure everyone knows that? Well, let's make sure everyone knows about this guidance material because all it does is tell every employer what their responsibilities are in case they didn't know it. Uh, but the other thing I find is that there are a lot of employers out there that want to do the right thing. They just don't know how to do it. And strangely, even employers feel a little awkward about uh, challenging some of these behaviours in the workplace. Uh, so much of it is so deeply entrenched in our culture and and the way we interact with one another. I think by uh, really empowering employers as well as employees about what uh, employer obligations are, what employee rights are, and what the standard is that we should expect when a person comes forward with a complaint, that is that it be taken seriously and dealt with seriously uh, and where there is uh, behaviour that is occurring that is not appropriate, that it be stamped out. Um, that it be backed up with training. In fact, a good example I saw in, on um, uh, one of the materials uh, was that if you do see something like this happening, it might be a good prompt for employers to do another round of training about you know, what their policies and procedures are, what the expectations are. And I thought that was very good practical advice um, because the more that the employer takes the lead on this and sets that standard and makes it very clear what the expectations are, the safer that all people will feel about making a complaint that something is unsafe. I mean, I guess a parallel, which I think is interesting is, you know, if there was something unsafe, another hazard in the workplace, you know, there was a cord everyone kept tripping over or a piece of carpet that people were, were tripping on, or, you know, there was a light that kept flickering and needed to be changed. People don't hesitate about raising those things. And they are other examples of low level risks in workplaces. This is another risk. We all know what the consequences are of not taking action on I'll call that casual sexism, um, uh, the consequences can be profound. They not only affect the culture, so make people less um, inclined to bring their whole selves to work and, and give 100% to their job, but we know that they have uh, can have profound impact, uh, a profound impact on people's mental health. 
uh, and long-term consequences to mental health. That is no different um, to how a hazard that causes physical injury um, is dealt with. This is the same. We need to start thinking about this in the same way that we would a physical hazard and a physical injury. I think that phrase, the standard you walk past is the standard you accept, is something that we've been hearing for a long time now. It's just that, unfortunately, it seems to only compute temporarily and then everything reverts back to what it was before. Interesting that you mentioned this WorkSafe Guide to Work-Related Gendered Violence Liberty, which, as you said, it's really good. It's quite comprehensive, but it's not complicated. It's, it's easy to read. It's easy to understand. So the information's there. I just wonder, is anyone actually reading it you know, what's the disconnect between the production of that information and the actual uh, provision of and sort of embracing of it? And then what role does government have to ensure that employers are uh, going down the, the, that track and taking those steps that you talked about? Well, that particular guidance came about after long consultation uh, with stakeholders um, and particularly the work of the Victorian Trades Hall Council needs to be credited in, in bringing that to the fore. So having brought that guidance about, the next step that I believe that the, the Victorian government is going to take is ensuring that more employers know about it. What will that involve? Well, it's going to involve them going out uh, and inspecting workplaces and making sure that there is compliance with the guide. And I would suggest that um, they're going to have to think about where there is non-compliance, issuing the same kind of notices uh, that they would if uh, an employer was breaching physical safety standards. And ultimately, if there is no improvement, they can consider prosecution. Now, they are sticks rather than carrots, uh, but these things work collaboratively uh, when it comes to shifting culture. If we think about uh, where we were at 50 years ago on uh, occupational health and safety for physical hazards, we were well behind where we are today. Uh, but these days we see uh, amongst many employers, certainly not all, but amongst many, a vastly improved culture of workplace safety, great pride being taken in uh, workplace safety when it comes to these physical hazards or, or uh, machinery or whatever it might be. We need to get issues around conduct and culture being treated in the same way in order to get a big step change in prevention. My own view on what the hesitation is, is it's so deeply entrenched in culture. We all know, I know, that uh, in order to survive in uh, some workplaces and or working environments, that you let 99 out of 100 comments sail past you because you're just trying to get on with your job. So you know, part of well, part of what everyone has to do is decide uh, how they're going to respond when these comments are made. It would be much easier to come forward and make uh, a complaint when a comment is made if you knew that the standard that was expected uh, was that you would and that it would be dealt with appropriately and you were then left free to get on with your job. But I think the hesitation on many women coming forward in particular is a fear of retribution, a fear of not being included, a fear of not being believed and a fear ultimately of ramifications for coming forward. We've got to get rid of that if we're going to make any progress on sexual harassment in the workplace. Libby, I'm assuming that you have actually had women approach you uh, for representation at Morris Blackburn who have experienced exactly that, who have felt like they can't speak up and that the retribution was very bad for them. Um, what do you recommend that we do if we find ourselves in a situation where we 
are certain that we're subjected to harassment in this way. What, what are steps we can take? Should we keep a diary? Should we be um, seeking legal advice? What, what would you recommend? A couple of things. Uh, a diary is actually a great idea. In some ways, it depends where you're at. But um, my first piece of advice would be seek independent advice. I would encourage everyone to uh, be a member of a union and to go to their union and seek advice about what to do. I would encourage you to, um, if you're not a member of a union, seek independent legal advice. The reason you should do that before you do anything is because uh, where we're at right now, uh, we see a very varied response in how employers handle complaints of sexual harassment. And I do I hate to say this, but more often than not, uh, we see that employers um, handle sexual harassment complaints badly. Um, some employers know how to handle it, most don't. In fact, I think we're actually seeing this being played out in an extraordinarily horrific way with what we're hearing from Canberra. Um, but if you get that independent advice from the beginning, you'll be well equipped to know what the options are. Um, the, the options range from an internal um, complaint being made, and I would hope then an internal investigation, uh, to going straight to the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission, or to making a complaint to the um, safety uh, body, WorkSafe in Victoria, WorkCover elsewhere, or all three. There are some key key components though to any investigation that's undertaken that we would insist upon if a complaint is to be investigated. That is that it be external and independent. Um, it's impossible for an organisation to conduct a fair investigation when they're conducting it into themselves. Um, and many, many people who approach us have been sucked in to a process that it, that's being undertaken by the employer only to find at the end, having entered it in good faith, they are very poorly treated. You know, I think it's really important that investigations be independent. I think it's really important that they be transparent. I think a really high quality investigation will enable the complainant to see the material and not keep it secret. And then underlying all of that is leadership from the organisation. Uh, so the person who's bringing forward the complaint uh, should feel safe and supported at all times. Uh, so, so key for anyone who finds themselves in this situation is to get advice, independent advice, be appraised of the options and know what you're facing into as you um, start the process. I would encourage everyone to, um, to seek advice. I know from experience um, as a person who has uh, seen this happen as a lawyer, as a friend of others that have um, been through it, that, um, that a lot of us think that we can handle it, that we're expert in it, that we can trust the system. Uh, we don't want to cause trouble. We just want this behaviour to stop. And we think that, you know, if we just do a series of uh, small things, that everything will be okay. And we don't need to go outside and get any independent advice. I cannot think of an example where I've seen that happen and the woman the complainant has, has ended up being happy with the outcome. So I do think it's critical that people seek advice before they do anything. Liberty, when you say know what you're facing into, it makes me feel like just rigid with fear. I feel as though any woman who is brave enough to speak up um, needs to be supported, but also we need to acknowledge that it's an extremely courageous thing to do. 
Yeah, and this is where I uh, struggle as a lawyer because I don't want anybody feeling afraid about mm. coming forward. There is nothing um, there is nothing scary about getting advice and finding out what your options are. So don't be ignorant. Know what the options are, um, and you'll be you'll be told um, uh, by experts whether you've got a reason to come forward and what what the likely outcome might be. Um, but you know. I, I know where we're at in society and I know what toll it can take. And it's, um, you know, it's it's breaking my heart. I'm sure it's breaking everyone's heart watching what's happening to poor Brittany Higgins. You know, the thing that makes me so angry is that we are still at a stage where it's up to the victim to lead a process um, and to, um, to carry the burden of trying to change culture. That's so wrong. Mm-hmm. It's it's the employer obligation to lead process. Um, there are clear steps that can be followed. I, I do encourage everybody to look at this WorkSafe guidance. It makes it very clear. Um, you, if you read it, you'll think that's all common sense. Well, it is, but it's not being applied by most employers. Um, it, again, I say, if, if, you know, if the steps uh, that are outlined there had been followed in Canberra, I would hope very much that we would not see Brittany as re-injured as I think she uh, is likely to be today as a result of having to take the courageous stand she's taken. And I have to say, because I'm a lawyer, in response to her allegations. Um, but, but, you know, that, that that infuriates me. So we need to see employers leading the right behaviour uh, and we need to see women supported uh, when they come forward. I do keep saying women, and I uh, should correct myself there because it's not only women mm. that suffer this, it is mostly women. Um, but study after study has shown that um, it not that there are certainly uh, men that are victims of sexual harassment. Uh, and in addition to that, um, if you are LGBTQI, uh, you're more likely to be harassed, um, that you're more likely to be harassed if you suffer, um, sorry, if you, if you have a disability or if you are from an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander background. So, you know, the, the, uh, the challenges that we face are not only related to gender, they are related to all attributes that we present with, which of course comes back to why we need diverse and inclusive workplaces because uh, all of these attributes are to be celebrated uh, and uh, embraced in a workplace rather than to be isolated, humiliated, offended, um, made to feel unwelcome uh, and to be a, a reason for suffering sexual harassment. Mm. Well, we do thank Morris Blackburn Lawyers for uh, supporting Broad Radio at this time. We're going to be uh, welcoming many of your team, Liberty, in coming months to speak about different versions of personal injury, of which, sadly, there's many. Um, And we invite you to reach out to us. If you have a question that you would like to ask of Morris Blackburn Lawyers, you can contact us at broadradio.com.au. And as you say, Liberty, we put our arms around anybody who's courageous enough to speak up because it needs to be a victim-survivor-focused response. Thanks so much, Liberty, for your time. That's my pleasure. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Zoe. And we'll have more Broad Radio after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Broad Radio. Talking inspo we love, info we need, and sharing more of us. Watch and listen live every Tuesday, 9am, Australian Eastern Daylight Savings Time at broadradio.com.au or find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and LinkedIn at Broad Radio Oz. Talk to us live. Call on 1300 8 Broad. Catch up on demand anytime, anywhere, every time, everywhere. On the train, we'll be here. 2am existential crisis. We've got you covered. Broad Radio, here for more. Oh, Zoe, it's my favourite time of the week when we get to welcome one of my favourite funny ladies, Kirsty Weebeck. Hello. Hello. How are you going? Well, I think, I think congratulations is in order because you have just celebrated an anniversary of your partner, Elle. Well done. Three years. I, Not thank easy. Thank you. No, it's, three years is really long. I haven't done anything for – no, that's not true. I've done lots of things for three years. But I haven't <laughs> had many relationships for three years. <laughs> yeah, we just celebrated it. And it is, it's a, a massive triumph because I'm very irritating. Uh, <laughs> so, like, I'm determined to maintain this relationship for the rest of my life. Uh, I hope Elle's on board with that because I just I can't get back into the dating pool and I just don't know if anybody else would tolerate my antics. What, what's particularly irritating about you? Do you ever just ha- take a moment to have a bit of self-reflection and you have a look at like a lot of your habits and some of the things that you undertake and you're like, oh, I thought I thought I was doing okay, but on the sum of it, I'll give you some examples. Um, I get very giddy at night when I get into bed. I get very excited about being in bed and about being about to go to sleep. <laughs> and I get Sorry. <laughs> and I get very very chatty. And oh. usually, there's a term that we use in stand-up comedy when we just get up and do a really short set called a tight five. And often Elle will say to me, all right, that's enough of your type five, go to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) It happens nearly every night. And as I'm brushing my teeth, I always think, okay, just calmly go into bed. How do I brush my teeth, by the way? What's going on? Why are you doing that? You've got enormous (laughs) chompers. (laughs) (laughs) While I'm brushing my teeth. (laughs) You've got them stirring in a pot. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I need to talk to my dentist about that. Um, <laughs> but while I'm brushing my teeth, I'll be like, okay, you've just got to go in, just relax, just go to sleep like a regular adult person. But then the second I get under the covers, I'm just so excited to be there and to be a part of this soon-to-be sleeping journey <laughs> that I'll be like, hey, El, <laughs> guess what happened at my seventh birthday party? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I would not tolerate that. 
I need I need complete darkness, peace. Let's not talk. If I could have someone strumming a harp in the corner, I would. I just want total, you know, absolute reverence for the sleeping space. I think it's reminding me of my two children, actually, Kirsty. I've got a twelve year old and a fourteen year old, and they both get into bed with us every night before we all go to sleep. And they'll be right. like bouncing off the walls and we'll my husband and I are like, Go to bed, just get out of here. But you know, it, there's a lot of synergy in what you're saying, uh, between that and my teenage children, to be honest. Well, you need to stay strong, Zoe, and you need to nip it in the bud right now, or it could still be an issue when they're thirty eight, for example. <laughs> but you're still together. <laughs> We are. We're still together. And that's, yes, Elle's very good at managing uh, these situations. I think that's why we're still together. I'm, uh, I've also got a fixation on certain things when I go to the supermarket. Like every now and then there'll be a new product that I will buy every time I do the shopping. And there's bans in place now. Like uh, we cleaned out the cupboards the other day and we found out that we have seven hand washers and uh, <laughs> six laundry detergent so I think that's saying something about me being clean which is good but we don't have a lot of storage space and I was like can you stop buying the same products every time you go like you know laundry detergent will last for a few months right and I'm like ah, oh, that's the clue I needed but you see I think right okay you call that irritating okay but actually all you're doing is providing for your household, right? I think there there's a spin on everything that's a bit irritating. Like I, when I, you were telling me about you're irritating, I asked my husband, what about me is annoying, which isn't necessarily a good thing to do because he really came home with a lot, a lot on that list. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but he was like, oh, you're really loud when I'm trying to watch the TV, you're doing the dishes. I'm like, well, probably the spin on that is that I'm doing the dishes. Like, you know, there's a good to every irritating thing, surely. You and I are on the same wavelength and when Elle watches this, she's going to be furious that you validated me because that's how I always pitch it to her. <laughs> I'm like, well, would you rather we had no laundry detergent? Would you rather I stopped going to the shops every day? Exactly right. I'm disappointed that my husband... Day, by the way. Oh, well, we'll see you in lockdown. You see, I'm maybe, yeah, were, you, were you stockpiling in lockdown? <laughs> Did you have a cup wall-to-wall toilet paper? Yeah, pe- yeah, people were panic buying toilet paper and I was panic buying uh, laundry liquid and garlic, apparently. Mm, yeah. Well, I asked my Well, there was a garlic the- shortage. There was, was there? a ginger shortage as well. Garlic oh. and ginger. It was cursed. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I feel like these, during lockdown, tiny irritations became magnified into larger irritations. So I have an obsession with lighting candles in the evening. You know, it's part of my sort of serenity vibes and my husband has a real problem with me putting the burnt matches back in the matchbox because then when he gets a match out to use it's already burnt and he he it really irritates him Mm -hmm. and then a couple of weeks ago I kind of got my comeuppance because the whole family were out and I was going through my evening ritual of lighting the candles and just getting my my chill happening and I put the match back in the matchbox and the entire matchbox ignited in my hand (gasps) (laughs) <laughs> I just oh, rolled out the door. <laughs> so, 
So he was right. I shouldn't be putting burnt matches back in the matchbox. Zoe, that's an extreme example of getting your come up and it's like it turning into a right. Molotov cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, in honest truth, I think we're lucky to have our partners and they're lucky to have us. That's my end result. I agree. I, when we have these conversations, you've just got to go, oh, well, we're all annoying, aren't we? Yeah, <laughs> we are. Yeah. Thanks so much, Kirsty. Hey, by the way, you can go and see Kirsty in the Melbourne International Comedy Festival in April. I think we've got the uh, details there. I love that your show is called Chakasiki. <laughs> Which is, I think, brave coming out of lockdown when all of us felt like we were... <laughs> Forced to it was a bold things. move. Yeah, a 12-month sickie. <laughs> um, but you can uh, purchase your tickets at melbournecomedyfestival.com. Oh, no, just comedyfestival.com.au. Um, thanks so much, Kirsty. We'll see you again soon. Thank you. See you both. And we'll have more Broad Radio after this. So, Zoe, we've already uh, touched on the fact that you have a teenage son and a teenage daughter and I myself have a daughter who's 12 and I'm surrounded by parents who are feeling, um, I think, really uh, alert to the fact that we have some issues uh, in and around consent and respectful relationships that have been highlighted in the last few weeks. Have you discovered that parents are wanting to know, to be armed with the information as to how to speak with their kids about this? Well, I think it's a question of how far do you go? You know, have you already had these conversations with your children and in what context have you had these conversations, particularly with older kids, whether they're actually already monitoring this news debate that's going on as well? So working through that with them, just, you know, what's alleged to have happened and sort of helping them understand what the allegations are and then it provokes some thought for them around, you know, what what might they do, mm. be, be it a girl or a boy, if they were in the the particular situation that that's been outlined. Um, but it's it's not an easy conversation to have as a parent, especially with teenagers who are kind of innately uh, not keen to have mm. those kinds of conversations. Yeah. They find it a bit like, "You, mummy, stop talking to me about that," you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in our case, I think we've just addressed it head on um, and talked to particularly our son about it. He'd be furious if he knew I was talking to you about it, to be honest. But, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's a tricky one for, for parents. It is. So uh, we thought that we would go to an expert, someone who actually uh, educates uh, teenagers, um, runs workshops in secondary schools. She is the founder of Seed Workshops. Her name is Catherine Manning and she joins us now. Hi there, Catherine. Hi, Jo. You know, this is a really difficult thing to speak with our kids about and you do go into schools and, and, and talk with uh, boys and girls around these sorts of issues of respectful relationships and consent. How how do you approach it? What's the first thing you you mentioned to them? Uh, Well, first of all, we unpack a lot of the gender stereotyping that happens throughout childhood, uh, which also includes a lot of the attitudes and behaviours that we have basically decided upon by society, by these social constructs, depending on whether we identify as a girl or a boy. Uh, so we unpack all of that and uh, and then that sort of flows into more in-depth conversations about uh, relationships and how those stereotypes play out in our everyday lives and in our relationships. 
Uh, and then we go further into that where we do look at consent, we look at what consent means, uh, we look at uh, the different types of uh, body language, for example, uh, spoken language, uh, the signs of consent, um, permission, etc. Um, and looking at enthusiastic consent. So for young people, they might think consent is just uh, literally just a yes, but then, you know, there are different ways that we can say yes. Um, and some of those are I guess when we, you, you were talking before about that line, I guess that's the, the point where we have to talk about consent in a way that we unpack that line and that it is that we make sure that we have enthusiastic consent so that our kids know what that means. So, Catherine, what about in the context of this current situation, how do you address this conversation with kids in the context of what they're seeing on the TV, how they're seeing their leaders behaving, perhaps parents are talking about it in the kitchen over dinner, you know, there's quite a lot there that perhaps complicates that conversation even more. Look, it really can. And I think a lot of the things that we're seeing in the media that young people are seeing in the media, uh, you know, quite extreme, uh, the extreme end of sexual harassment. So if we start with the conversations with our kids where we're talking about things like everyday issues, it doesn't need to even be around sexual consent uh, to start with. In fact, you know, from the time our kids are, are really little, we should be uh, really teaching them how to set and respect their own boundaries and those of others. Um I look back to my own childhood and I think, you know, there there are certain moments that I can recall where, um, you know, back then compliant children were seen as, you know, that was the bee's knees, like your kids are very well behaved, they're very polite, they're, you know, they're affectionate, they'll kiss you hello and goodbye. And, I, I mean, I remember um, a great uncle who I would feel a little bit anxious about going to visit because he would kiss me in a way that, you know, my lips would actually be wet after he'd kiss me hello and then we'd have to kiss him goodbye. Um, and then I'd go home feeling quite sick about that. So I think for a lot of us, we've particularly of my our generation um we've grown up with this idea that uh you know just just giving ourselves in that way that that just saying yes as you know a kiss hello or a kiss goodbye um regardless of how we're actually feeling about it um that's kind of been normalized so now we're having to have these conversations with our kids which i think is fantastic and i think it's it's long overdue but you know we're all in this boat where we haven't had these conversations really with our own parents so uh you know it, it is very new so i think starting from that point of um you know how can we assert ourselves and you know we don't have to be necessarily aggressive uh we don't want to be passive about it we want to just be assertive so so talking to our kids about that and also in the context of uh you know these more serious allegations and and encounters that people have um in the workplace um and you know of course it's our parliament so that's also quite shocking in this day and age that uh you know seemingly no action has been taken um despite these people coming forward i think we have to also encourage our kids to talk 
Um, and if we open up that conversation at home, we're giving them a safe space to come and talk to us about, uh, you know, if they've experienced anything or if any of their friends have experienced anything. Um, and it, it opens up that, that channel for conversation and for them to have place to be um, heard and believed. Um, and as you mentioned before, and then seeking some sort of, um, you know, justice or, or um, professional help if necessary. Catherine, I really love what you highlight there around our girls and boys um, from a young age being entitled to say, no, I don't wish to hug you hello right now and to set those boundaries and to be able to express it, not fearing what the reaction will be, because I think you do feel a bit guilty. Am I going to hurt someone's feelings? And then on the flip side, for the person to receive that information, whether it's a boy or a girl, without feeling hurt, without feeling wounded, to know that I have to respect that person's wishes, that's a pretty critical thing that surely is underlying this sense of entitlement that we're seeing at the extreme end of, you know, people harassing someone or assaulting someone. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no shortage of of grandparents who get their noses out of joint when parents do say to them, oh, hang on a sec, he or she is saying they don't want a kiss or a cuddle or they don't want you to to keep tickling them. So can you please stop? I mean, we've got to go in and back our kids and it can be hard for grandparents and, and you know, other people um, because they kind of, they, they, they feel like they're being victimised. They feel like you're saying that they're doing something that they shouldn't be doing. And look, I guess you really are. You're saying that you, you need to respect my child's boundaries. Um, and I think it is a really important message because you're teaching your child that, that their voice is important. Um, and this goes right through uh, through their whole lives, that that, that boundary that they set if they feel uncomfortable if they don't want to do it as I said it doesn't necessarily even need to be about sex but anything um, that their boundaries are respected and that they know how to set them and it strikes me that you know even though these are difficult conversations to be had both with the kids but also with extended family that with what we're seeing happening in the media now um, although it makes it complicated it's also a good jumping off point to start these conversations because it actually opens the door for that subject to be, you know, front of mind and and talked about openly. Yeah, absolutely. It takes the focus off. When you said before about your son maybe feeling a bit uncomfortable, and I know a lot of parents fear that discomfort, um, but in my experience, when you open the door, and and this is a, a great starting point, um, once you get that conversation going, you will find that your kids are actually really grateful to have it. And that's the experience that we have when we go into schools and deliver our workshops, that we're having these hard conversations. We're doing it in a safe way, um, but we're allowing the students to really think about uh, their behaviour. And, you know, even when we talk about people behaving in creepy ways or, uh, you know, doing things that might be perceived as a little bit creepy, sometimes they're completely unaware because they haven't had this unpacking of consent and they haven't grown up with this idea that, you know, you can't just go and slap someone on the backside because you like them or, you know. So I think having having those conversations as soon as possible and, look, and it's not if you haven't had the conversations with your kids while they're in uh, early childhood, um, it's never, ever too late. And, in fact, it's not even too late for adults because, as we're seeing, all of these cases recently involve adults. So 
you know, there's a conversation to be had around the dinner table with with friends, with with older family members. It's a it's a whole society problem. What is the reaction from uh, the students that you speak to, boys and girls, when you go into the high schools and you actually talk about um, instances where there has not been consent um, or when you're educating them around sort of, you know, gender stereotypes or, you know, what sorts of reactions are you getting from the boys and the girls? Um, well, look, we don't we don't ask the students to disclose. In fact, we discourage them from disclosing anything that they've experienced, um, particularly the serious nature in the space. Um, however, the conversations that we do have, uh, which and we use some high profile cases of sexual assault, and we unpack the media's reporting about that. We unpack some of the social media type comments and commentary around it. And usually, there's a lot of victim blaming a lot of slut shaming where uh, people are questioning uh, what a, a particular woman was wearing or, you know, what she was doing out at that time of night. So there's all these sort of, you know, putting the, the onus back onto the victim. So we unpack all of that with the students um, and they absolutely, it's like you can hear a pin drop and they're, they're 100% um, intent and the feedback is always that they were really grateful to have the conversation and to have these things addressed and things that they're I mean kids are pretty switched on these days but they're things there are things that they're experiencing and particularly in relation to their exposure to, for example to pornography where there are a lot of scenes that don't appear to be consensual so a lot of material they're seeing is um, highly problematic um, and you know and then they're seeing in society obviously with, with all of these cases going on at the moment, um, you know, that we've got these these leaders, these supposed role models who have engaged in these behaviours. So, you know, they're, they're really putting all the pieces together and, and they're ready to understand how they can, A, protect themselves to a point, um, but B, that they can be also aware of their own behaviors as well towards other people because as i said a lot of these uh, a lot of the ways teenagers sexually harass each other is quite um um you know inadvertent or they're quite shocked that that constitutes sexual harassment they didn't realize um and once they're armed with that knowledge um you know they're very grateful for that and that then obviously sets them up as adults to be much more aware of those things in the workplace etc well, uh, it's a massive thing that we're undertaking, raising this next generation to hopefully um, respect each other to the point where we don't have this harassment and abuse anymore. But you're right, it's the adults that we need to address. And I don't know, Zoe, how do we, how do we uh, get this urgent response so that um, people are protected now? Yeah, this is kind of where we're at this week, isn't it? I mean, we were talking earlier about how it's very much a work in progress. And, you know, as Catherine said, you've got leaders not only in politics but in uh, business, in, in media, in uh, the arts, film, Hollywood, who have been you know, badly exposed in the last couple of years in regard to their behaviour. And, you know, these are people that our kids perhaps treat as role models um, which is a really frightening and worrying thing. But at the same time, exposing that behaviour has also opened eyes all around the world among kids and adults. And, you know, that's continuing to happen here over the next couple of weeks. And in my, in my mind, the question remains, what happens next? Mm -hmm. Catherine, I know that we can get to seedworkshops.com.au and you do run workshops in schools, but also you have some parent uh, uh, workshops as well there. 
Yes, we do. So, um, and looking at expanding into workplaces as well. So that's another area that we'd like to uh, to target. Uh, clearly, it's very much needed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, if you're feeling the need for assistance, uh, do check out seedworkshops.com.au. Thanks so much, Catherine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, International Women's Day is on the 8th of March. It is a time in which we celebrate how far we have come towards gender equality, but of course, keep the conversation going because, Zoe, we have so much further to go when it comes to gender equality, yes? I can't even begin to start that conversation. (laughs) I know. We would never get off air, wouldn't we? (laughs) But uh, it's also a time when around the world there are some amazing online events taking place and I'm thrilled to be a part of an online lunchtime panel discussion which is being presented by One Roof in conjunction or in partnership, I should say, with Women's Agenda, M Time, Verve Super and Broad Radio. Uh, it is on the 11th of March and it's free and you can get you can register at Eventbrite um, and it is called Honouring Women's Successes and Sacrifices. Um, so much to talk about there. The founder of One Roof is entrepreneur Cherie Rubenstein and she joins us. Hi Cherie. Hi Joe. Hi Zoe. Great to be here. Well, tell us a bit about One Roof to begin with. Sure. So One Roof for the last few years has been well known as the leading uh, co-working operator in Australia for women-led businesses. We were on a trajectory of growth and setting up uh, lots more co-working spaces. And then, of course, COVID hit and it really, it changed everything. I lost confidence in the business model and my fear around, you know, what was going to happen and, and endless lockdowns led me to really pivot the business entirely. I had raised capital with investors and, and then um, decided to return the capital, which, you know, not many women raise capital. And so when they do, having to return the capital was um, a, cha- a very challenging thing to do, but um, the right thing to do. And I pivoted the business to a digital membership. So we now support Uh, female leaders and entrepreneurs and bring them together under one roof and since launching in June last year we've onboarded over 250 women across Australia and even globally now we've hosted over a hundred online events we hosted one of the largest female founder pitch nights last year and we've had really great success amongst our members and I'm having lots of fun. Cherie you've got a a great story about what One Roof was literally when it was a co-working space and how exciting that was to have this building in Melbourne sort of buzzing with people. How's it felt, I guess, to have to either shelve or at least pause that and turn this into a virtual experience, especially, as you say, when you raised all that capital, which is so hard to do? Mm, it felt like for a moment it felt like an immense failure on you know I was very uh, narrow-minded and very focused on the path that I was on and I really I looked to the wing in the US as a great example of the kind of business that we, we were diff, always different to the wing but you know they were having great success and I really wanted to be the wing for Australia and so it felt like a failure, you know. I, I 
I felt I'd failed my community, um, myself, my investors, um, my advisors. But I think over time, very quickly, I've realized that um, there's so much power in the online and I'm actually really enjoying it. And I feel grateful that I have been able to return the capital to my investors. They are, you know, warm investors now who are interested in what I'm doing and, and are interested to reinvest again in the future. So, you know, I've held great integrity. I've done the right thing. Um, and I guess I've turned what, you know, could be a, like the worst situation for a business owner into an opportunity. Um, and so, you know, pivoting and, and really harnessing this online world now um, as kind of the focus and the business model and then still bringing people together in person, but really basing the business model off of virtual um, digital membership. Yeah, it's, it's been a great opportunity and I have to take it as that. Uh, and I'm really inspired by it too, Cherie, that you can kind of face that inner voice that tells you you are failing and going, no, this is the right path for us now. I don't think that's an easy thing to do at all. So uh, I'm really inspired by that. Um, can you tell me why is it you think women need women-only spaces? Oh, where to begin? Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess... I come back to, firstly, I come back to um, a statistic that I can't get out of my head that I think about all the time, and that is that the World Economic Forum estimates that it could take well over 200 years to achieve true gender equality worldwide. And I, you know, when you pause and think about that, we could be living on Mars if Elon Musk has his way well before we achieve gender equality. And I'm sure the pandemic has made that gap, you know, even further. Um, and so whatever we're doing, we're not doing enough and it's not happening fast enough and, and the closing that gender gap, we, we're not accelerating it quick enough. And you know, 51% of the population are women and yet we are we are missing from decision-making tables in all areas from government to startup to entrepreneurship to business. Um, and so obviously a lot more needs to be done. From my experience running One Roof over the last six years, creating spaces and programs and opportunities specifically for women, there, there is a lot of power in that. The, the dynamic, the creating a safe space um, for women to be open, to ask questions, to share their specific and unique challenges as women. That's not to say that creating a space for men isn't just as important with the right intention and the right curation, as well as creating spaces for men and women together. And so I think there's a place for all of those things um, and it has to be very intentional with the right facilitation and, and curation. But yeah, I've seen the power of bringing women together in a space where they can be very open about their challenges, you know, particularly around parenthood or whether they've kind of sacrificed um, becoming a mum at the expense of building their business, um, you know, and the challenges that they've faced and the barriers they've faced specifically as women. And I think it's much harder to have those conversations without the dynamic of a women's space. That said, One Roof has never been exclusively female only. So we've always had men involved and, and male members in our, in our community. And of course, you're all about with One Roof bringing women together because um, yeah, supporting each other is critical to our progress just worldwide, really, essentially. So um, what's really exciting is that 
Broad Radio has the opportunity to join One Roof, the digital membership, at a nearly 50% discount. So if you head along to One Roof and put in the discount code Broad Radio, you get that membership, lifetime membership of a discount, which is so great. Thank you so much for that offer there, Cherie. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks, Zoe. Zoe, I should ask you, would you be able to name off the top of your head a sacrifice that you have made towards a success for yourself? No, I don't. I think I need to think about it, which kind of says a lot, doesn't it? I mean, really, we're all just paddling under the water, not necessarily deconstructing how we're doing it. And maybe we should do that more and then kind of go, well done, you. It's so true. Well, thank you so much, Cherie. Get along to One Roof and uh, take advantage of that great discount for the membership there. Register at Eventbrite. Take care, Cherie. Thanks. Bye. Because, I mean, you are extraordinarily accomplished and you've done some amazing things in your career and you have just released your new book. Oh, Joe, it has been <laughs> a, quite a mission, a head-splitting exercise, shall we say. Uh, Donald Trump, you know, subjecting myself to another seven or eight months of writing this book about Donald Trump and then trying to release it in the middle of a pandemic, it has been quite interesting, to say the least. But the book is, it is a thing. It, it does exist. Yes. <laughs> it is now in bookstores. Thank goodness. Yeah, there it is. Greetings from Trumpland. Of course, you have written this book having been in America during uh, his reign, if you'd like to call it that. And so you had a particular insight there. And I saw your exercise books, of which there were many, in which you took all your notes along the way. So the process itself is Yeah, yeah, is they're all sitting next to my desk still. There's about 20 of them uh, sitting there. I'm old school in, in when it comes to notes. But, you know, we don't have a lot of time, but I would just say to people that the book is... It does talk about how Donald Trump got elected and why he came to power, but really it's about the future in many ways because it's about all the things that he changed, why people support him and continue to do so, how that's overflowed uh, internationally in various ways politically. And, um, you know, there's a lot of awareness raising in this book just around people disconnecting from each other and and not being able to have conversations with people that you disagree with and and the Mm. fact that that's really sort of polarising people and sending people to the margins, which I think is really dangerous in in democratic societies and we need to do something about that if we're going to kind of move forward together um, and promote good leadership and and good policy and and just sort of a good, good environment for all of us to exist in without sort of arguing with each other all the time. Oh, my gosh, Zoe, I just... I feel so disheartened when I see how people are unable to have conversations without being completely at loggerheads because is it that we can't have enough empathy to hear the other person's point of view or what is it? It just upsets me so much. Yeah, I don't know. Everything is so combative now and Mm. and I think, you know, people do, um, maybe they don't put themselves in situations where they have conversations with people with the reverse point of view to their own. And, you know, I've sort of made a a whole career out of looking at a prism and being able to look at it from all sorts of sides without judgment. So it won't be a, a comfortable book to read in many ways because a lot of it is it explains the perspective of Donald Trump supporters and, you know, why they chose to, to shelve some of their ethics around some things in favour of other attributes that they thought that he brought to that role. Uh, but it does speak a lot about loss of hope, 
and what people were looking for in a sort of anti-politician, a renegade politician, someone who was anti-establishment, who would bring something different to the US. And, you know, these are tactics that have been adopted by politicians the world over. Um, and, of course, you know, fake news, uh, the erosion of trust in authority and all those sorts of things are now, you know, a pervasive global problem. So these are all the sorts of themes that we explore in this book and I think you know it's a book for people who are just simply interested in um, changing social attitudes and social policy and, and politics but also for policy makers who are kind of considering you know what do you do with those 74 75 million people who voted for Donald Trump and all those people who sympathize with his, his points of view and the way that he approached leadership around the world you can't just pretend that they're not there just because mm. he's no longer the president mm. or just because you don't align with their beliefs that of course that their beliefs are valid and very powerful as well I mean, uh, I, I'm going to read the book because I want to be alert to what is out there in our leadership that perhaps I may not have been educated on. So uh, I can't wait to get my hands on it. Thanks so much for being my co-host today, Zoe. It's just been wonderful to have your insight. Always a pleasure, Joe. Thank you. Thanks. And we'll have more Broad Radio this time next week. We'll see you later. Have a great week. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.